Okay, this is going to be difficult, but let's focus. Yeah. Just Google a worship leader who brings both his kids on stage and sings. And you might find it on YouTube. No. He is famous. Okay. Father, please, Lord. It's right here, but it's not coming out. So, uh, guys, uh, we continue. Good to go, Wayne? Okay. Guys, we continue with prevailing church. And a strange aspect that the prevailing church was developed, which kind of took me by surprise, is uh, a prevailing church, we said, is a church that engages, that contends, that overcomes. And yet, it is impossible to do that unless we embrace this nature of Christ, which is humility. Or to take it a step further, which is a church that is okay with being humiliated. A church that is comfortable with humiliation. Very odd. But if you want to be a prevailing church that engages, contends and overcomes, then we must learn how to respond to being humiliated. And we must be a church that understands humility. You would think that a contending church shouldn't spend too much time down that road. And yet it's such an essential part of who we need to become. So, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 on one hand says that Jesus Christ is the radiance of the invisible God and that he holds everything together by the power of his word. And so we know that the Son took his honored place high in the heavens, right alongside God, far higher than any rank or rule. So there's that side of Christ. And then, yet at the same time, it says in Philippians 2.7 that he did not care two hoots for his reputation, but he took on the status of a slave. Here lies the paradox that the prevailing church must embrace. That on one hand, I must have an, est uh, 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 an accurate estimation of who God has made me and who I am and who we are as a church. But on the other hand, I must be able to empty myself. It's both. It's not one or the other. From God's perspective, you are his son. Embed that in your heart. From God's perspective, you are his son. You must embed that in your heart. But from your perspective, you must see yourself as a servant that represents him here in the earth. From his perspective, you are his son, and you must embed that in your heart. But from your perspective, from my perspective, I must see myself as a servant who represents him on earth. This is the nature that the prevailing church must hold in tension if it wants to engage, contend, and overcome. Otherwise, we will be a church that continuously reacts to things, gets hurt, gets broken, takes time to heal, can't handle humiliation, and is not like the overcomer Christ, who once said in Romans chapter 8 that you are more than conquerors because of Christ. And if it is because of Christ, then one of the things that stood out in his life is his ability to stand and say, I am. I was before your father Abraham was. Who can stand and say, I am your master. Who can stand and say, I am the Messiah. Who can stand and say, you will see the clouds open and the Son of God come down. He can say all that and yet at the same time, he can also say that I am the first of servants. A chief apostle becomes a chief of servants. So both have to come together, eh? Get used to this. From God's perspective, you are his son. Embed it in your heart so that you never forget that. But from your perspective, you must be his servant and representative in the earth. And if you don't think like that and in that order, son first, servant next, then it is impossible to become a prevailing church. In James chapter 4 verse 6, it says, God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. And the word resist there is almost like a military term where you put up a front and strongly oppose. And so here's what God is saying. I resist you, Jacob, with the same strength that a military commander would resist an enemy. That is the strength with which I resist you when you are proud. But I give grace, as in all of myself, unfettered, um, without grudging, bountifully, I give myself to you. 
give grace to you when you're humble. And then it goes on to say in verse 7, Therefore, submit to God and resist the devil. If you want to be a prevailing church, this is critical. Because there is a therefore in verse 7. It says God gives grace, God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God and resist the devil. It is almost as if, Jacob, if you don't go down this route, Acts 29, if you don't embrace this as your character, you will neither be able to submit to God, nor will you be able to resist the devil. Or they, pride is the kind of thing that prevents you from submitting to God, and at the same time it prevents you from resisting the devil. Then you can't be a prevailing church. It is chapter 4 verse 6 says that um, God gives God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble and then it says in verse 7 therefore submit to God and resist the devil and he will flee from you it almost seems to say that listen you cannot submit to God unless you walk in humility and you cannot resist the devil and he will not flee from you unless you walk in humility and yet this is not a one-sided equation because the church is plagued with one or the other. Either they have an estimation of themselves that is way out of whack or they have such a low estimation of themselves that we begin to sell ourselves short. We are either paupers or we are princes. What about holding both together where you're both prince and pauper? Where you're both son and servant? This is how prevailing churches are able to. Make noise here on earth. We see this in Nebuchadnezzar's account in Daniel chapter 4. If you go to Daniel chapter 4, you'll find such a progression. Daniel chapter 4. Because guys, pride and false humility are the same, eh? Both are self-focused. One is not better than the other. My God, can't stand it when um, you are next to proud people. Can't stand it when you're next to people who are falsely humble. Both are equally obnoxious and all of them, all of us are one or the other at different times of our lives. If you listen to my words, I'm not saying one or the other. I'm saying that both have to be held together. So, guys, you have to listen to the entire sentence so that you can get the sense of it. Otherwise, we'll end up as princes or as paupers. You can't pick on one word or the other. When I say pauper, what I mean is poor in spirit and that is a Jesus statement so on one hand I have to be poor in spirit and I have to be a servant here on earth on the other hand I have to have an honest estimation of myself that comes both from God his word and those that I submit to here in the body we don't realize that that to have an honest estimation of myself I need three things one I need God's understanding of who I am Two, I need to understand what the word says I am. And three, I need to understand what you say I am. Because God uses you to point out my blind spots. God doesn't show me my blind spots through dreams because I won't understand it even if he showed it in a dream, which is why it's called a blind spot. In the dark, it even gets darker. But you have been placed in my life to show me my blind spots. And so these three things allow us to have a healthy estimation that is godly. So there's that on one hand. On the other hand, I'm poor in spirit. I'm a servant. Strangely enough, even though I'm a servant, I can't look at you and say, you're my servant too. No, I'm a servant, you are God's servant, and I'm your servant. I'm, I'm God's servant, I'm your servant. You are not my servant, you are his servant. You have to decide for yourself how you deal with that. But as far as I'm concerned, I'm supposed to see myself as God's servant who serves you, but you don't serve me. That is your call. You are God's servant. Jesus uses the word slave, which is even a little lower, but since we don't understand slave, we'll stick to servant. Look at Nebuchadnezzar, chapter 4. Uh, not Nebuchadnezzar chapter 4, Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4 verse 30 onwards.
Uh, let's start at verse 28. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as a royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? The words were still on his lips when a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from the people and will live with the wild animals you will eat grass like cattle seven times will pass by you for until you acknowledge that the most high is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes immediately what he had said about nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled he was driven away from the people he ate grass like cattle his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claw of a bird at the end of that time i nebuchadnezzar raised my eyes towards heaven and my was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of the heavens and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Wow. Using a pagan king to teach us multiple lessons. To become a prevailing church, a church that engages, contends and prevails, overcomes, one must learn this mix that Christ your overcomer had, which is on one hand, he is seated on high, says he is I am. On the other hand, he also says, I was sent to be your servant. The strange thing with Nebuchadnezzar's story is yes, at one point he is proud and he is removed from office and he spends his time with animals in forests. Insane. But then the strange thing when you read uh, what we just read is when he is restored, he doesn't say now, oh God, I am a worm that you have restored to the throne. He says, as soon as my sanity returned, I got my throne back. I was made majestic again. I had splendor restored. My nobles sought me. The people looked at me again. And he begins to talk about everything that is restored. And then he says, but all this was from the hand of God. This pagan king had an accurate estimation of himself and he gave credit to whom credit was due to be given. This is the way we need to live out lives as a people of God and live out lives as children of God. To accurately estimate who I am. I am this. This is what I have been given. I'm good at this. It will border on brilliance and, and overconfidence but it doesn't step into it and having said that this is who I am I now say where I got it from both have to go hand in hand and it's such a fine art that God wants to teach us any questions before we go on it's not that you aren't wonderful after all, you were made in the image of God. It's that he is more wonderful. And your wonderfulness draws its source from him. I am wonderful. There are times I'm brilliant. The wisdom I have sometimes just blows me away. The things I build are so beautiful. The obedience I sometimes show and the skill that I have to build certain things that God has given me are so amazing. He includes me in projects that are impossible because he knows that I will be faithful and I'll do them well. And the grace that I have in certain areas are tremendous. I have an apostolic call upon my life. I am called to the nations. This is who I am. But guess what? I was not born with one of them. It was all given to me. And I thrill at having to work with my father on these things. He could do all of it himself. But he says, come Jacob, I so enjoy doing this with you. And therefore I can say it on one hand and then draw my source from 
him as the author of everything I have just said. This doesn't mean you go around saying this everywhere. But there are times when you need to acknowledge how wonderful you are. We don't. We wait for a prophetic word to tell us how wonderful we are. And that's good, because God does tell you how wonderful you are. But there are times when you need to look at who made you, and whose image you are made in, and remind yourself of how wonderfully you are made. He said that about you before you were even formed. Questions? Yeah. No questions because you agree? Huh. That's good. Guys, so internally I must think so first before externally acknowledging stuff. Because whenever these things are not internally cemented, I indulge in either pride or in self um, abasement or false humility. Both are, both are evil. Both are evil. Both will be resisted because they're just variations of the same thing. Pride. Excessive focus on self. Exalting yourself above God, above his word, above everything he says. That's it. One way or the other, it's the same thing. But internally, if you can get to this place where you acknowledge and know your measure, not because of what you think of yourself, but because you have gotten an idea of what God thinks of you, gotten an idea of what the word says about you, and gotten an idea of what others say about you because of their desire to see you do better. And if you can walk there, then you are usually safe from pride and every time I get proud there will be somewhere or the other that God will show me through the word or directly or through you that Jacob you stepped into pride again I've so I, I know I've said this before but I, I, I so I'm so grateful for the people who point out pride arrogance um wrongness, wrong motives in my life. I love it. I wouldn't be where I am if it wasn't for people who did that to me. My God, you should crave for it. You should plead for it saying, oh God, please, please send me honest people who will tell me things on my face so that I change myself. Don't ask the question when you are told about something in your life. Uh, well, what evidence do you have? Tell me why do you think so? What did you see about this? Show me evidence. Why have you come to this conclusion? Really? i got to prove things to you? Or someone else has to prove it to you. If someone says to Betty, Betty, you got a deficit in this area, and Betty knows that that person is seriously interested in a well-being, then Betty should examine what is said instead of asking for evidence. Go ahead. Absolutely. But when the motive becomes prove it before I accept it, then you're already on the on an odd kind of defensive. The, the thing should be, what I normally do when people point out stuff that is wrong, and every week I, I go through that, uh, my thing will be, uh-huh, and then I'll go back and, uh, the uh-huh is a genuine uh-huh, and then I'll go back and examine it, and then say, where did you see it? It's after. The first thing is to receive it, because I know there are certain people who are interested in my well-being. They want me to be better. <sighs> Humility that demeans myself to exalt God is not godly. Humility that demeans myself to exalt God is not godly. Humility that demeans myself to exalt God is not godly. The more this is solidified in a church, the less we'll have disclaimers like, you know, uh, it's not that I'm not a sinner, but we all sin, but we are all human, but my God, the number of disclaimers we have, that's why church services go long. Moses in Numbers 12.3 says something amazing. It says that Moses was the meekest man on the face of the earth. And guess who's writing it? Moses. 
If I did that, you guys would not be very happy. But Moses does that. <laughs> and you can accept it. Moses wrote the first five books and he writes that Moses was the meekest man on the earth. Why? Because the guy knew what God said about him. And the guy had an assessment of himself before God that was accurate. At the end of the day, a person who has an honest assessment of himself will begin to live a life that is more transparent and more willing to be accountable to man. Hear me again. A person who is beginning to walk in humility and has an accurate assessment of his own self is a man or a woman who is living a life that is more transparent and is living a life that is more willing to be accountable to man. That is the evidence sometimes for a person who says, I have an accurate estimation of myself and I walk humbly. The way to find that out is, is this person living a transparent life or is their life shrouded in secret? You know nothing about them. Is this a person who, submit, who submits to men and women around him or is this a person who isolates himself? Clear evidence sometimes, guys, of humility. Any questions on that? The reason I'm giving, uh, I'm saying any questions on that is challenge me. Because these are such critical things to our lives, guys. If God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble, then I think this is vitally important for me. Yeah, if I am someone who has an accurate estimation of myself, and if I am someone who says that I know how to walk in humility, then you will see greater transparency every year in my life and you will see a willingness to submit to being accountable to men and women both will be evident both will be evident I get so tired of having to say stuff like you know um we are all sinners, but, or uh, I don't mean this this way, but, or it's just constantly trying to say things that will make us look humble enough. We can never say anything straight. Hey, I had a brilliant week. No, you know, the week was difficult, but compared to the other weeks, I had a pretty good week. Really? You had a brilliant week? Say it. Or you, you, uh, you exhibited great wisdom. Uh, I don't know whether it's wise in your eyes, and maybe you had a week where you were wiser than this, but this week was really wise for me. You could have saved so much breath. Continuously trying to downplay what we do. You know, God really blessed me. He gave me $12,000. I guess that's nothing for you because you must be earning $20,000. But for me, it was... You got $12,000, celebrate. Give me half of it. <laughs> I'm not some nameless, faceless Gideon-like character of treading wheat in a wine press and lamenting about the insignificance of the tribe I come from. I don't know why Gideon's held up as a hero at that point. I mean, it's, if you want to compare yourself to Gideon, compare yourself to him after chapter 7. Not before. He's talking about how insignificant he is. When he's, and God literally has to come and say to him, listen, valiant warrior, valiant warrior, you know, half the reason we are afraid of things, we talked about this two weeks ago, fear. How we are not fearless. We are not fearless because neither the people around us nor we ourselves talk to ourselves about who we are. There is this amazing thing called meditation, which is simply God-directed self-talk. We do not indulge in God-directed self-talk. Therefore, when we are standing in the world, we cannot say a single decent thing about ourselves, except when we come to church. God-directed self-talk. God-directed self-talk. Listen to Gideon's God-directed self-talk. I am of the least of the tribe of Benjamin. I have been left abandoned. We have served the Lord, but nothing has happened. This is a wine press. I must be treading grapes to make wine, which is used for rejoicing. But how can we rejoice at a time like this? So I will thresh wheat in the wine press. And even when the angel comes, he continues saying the same thing. 
And so God has to now help him engage in God-directed self-talk where he says, valiant warrior. And even then, Gideon goes in the middle of the night to tear down the idol because he still doesn't have the strength to do it. Because like I said, if you don't practice it now, it ain't going to happen tomorrow or in heaven. Self-directed, God-directed self-talk. Because if your family doesn't do it for you, if your wife doesn't do it for you, if your children aren't doing it for you, who's going to do it for you? Not cats. Perhaps some cats. Like Timmy. I don't know. Uh, Self-directed God talk. Yeah, and what he says. This is how you build a, build a decent estimation of yourself. God-directed self-talk. Any questions, guys? Please challenge me on this. Say, say no, this sounds too proudish. But it ain't. Go. Yeah, I, I would use him as an example if I was preaching about that. I would. That he can use people who are scared, frightened, don't think much of themselves. I would use him as an example for that. But in this case, I find it difficult that he's lamenting even after the angel speaks to him. Yeah. So on one hand, begin to indulge in God-directed self-talk. Otherwise, you won't be able to face your boss. You won't be able to face your clients. You won't be able to face your spouse. On the other hand, learn how to empty yourself. That's a strange thing. One hand is this thing about accurate estimation. On the other hand, you must be so obsessed with emptying yourself because that's what Jesus did. Focus on how to fully empty yourself. How do you empty yourself? Three very simple uh, pathways which we've talked about before. One, self-forgetfulness. Self-forgetfulness. Do well and then forget yourself. Get something, forget yourself. Don't, do, don't think too much of Jacob. Jacob, that is great. That is a great message. Really good preaching. Now, engage in this thing called self-forgetfulness. Empty yourself. Otherwise, you will be stuck at that level of great preaching for the next six months when you could go so much further. Self-forgetfulness is a word that C.S. Lewis came up with. Second, acknowledge all that you have and are comes from him. Acknowledge him as El Elyon, the mighty possessor of the universe who gives you all things. The mighty possessor of the universe who gives you all things. What are these? What are we talking about? We're talking about ways to empty yourself. What a cool thing, huh? On one hand, God is saying, be full of what I tell you you are. And then on the other hand, he's saying, now, go, empty yourself. What a cool God. And the third one is not to cling. These are three, I mean, magic bullets, if I was allowed to say that in church. Three, do not cling to your advantages, privileges, and rights. Whose life do we get all this from? From the one life that really matters, Jesus Christ. He did all three. What a cool God, man. What are we trying to do this for? We must become a people who prevail. One of the ways we prevail is by walking in this kind of attitude. Any questions, guys? Think like this, huh? Practice these things. Self-forgetfulness. After a great 
time of piano playing, Chris goes and no, no big deal. After making a huge business deal, Dano goes and self-forgetfulness. After teaching dance to 50 students, self-forgetfulness. After a brilliant message, self-forgetfulness. After getting a promotion at work, self-forgetfulness. After playing a great game of soccer, self-forgetfulness. In small and big things. Because we think we must engage in this in big things. Now, you can't engage, you can never deal with big things unless you do it in tiny, 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 tiny little things. Self-forgetfulness also helps you get over your mistakes faster. So, you burn your cooking dish. Self-forgetfulness. There are more dishes to cook. It just goes on and on and on. Acknowledge him as El Elyon, the mighty possessor. This makes it easy, even when you lose things, to know there is the mighty possessor of the universe from whom everything comes. And there is more because he owns a candy shop. It helps you recover from loss because he's the repairer of the breach and the restorer of the streets that are ruined. He's the locust chaser. He didn't call himself that, but it kind of says that. And then the last one is, do not cling on to your advantages, privileges, and rights. This is critically. Eh? You can do the first two and then hold on to your rights and advantages and privileges. Must lay them down because that is where pride begins to creep in. Our relationship with our possessions is also an extension of either pride or humility. Our relationship with our possessions, this is critical, our relationship with our possessions is also an indicator or an extension of our pride or humility. When something gives you less joy and more, when something that God has given you is it's less of a matter of joy, but more of a matter of a statement, then it will turn into an idol. Let me give you an example. So let's assume that uh, someone gives, uh, what, what's his name? Mike. Uh, someone gives Mike this guitar. And it is the ultimate guitar. Um, Eric Clapton played it, played it. And so he gives it to Mike. And Mike holds it, he looks at it, and it is supposed to be something that is a joyful gift that he was given because God loves giving us things for our pleasure. But he receives it and initially it's joy and from there on it becomes a statement of his status. Where Clapton's guitar now becomes, I got Clapton's guitar. It's not a question of joy anymore. It becomes a statement of status. The moment a God-given gift becomes a statement of status, it becomes an idol. And with it will come sensuality, confusion, pride, and the demonic. Doesn't matter whether it's your house, your promotion, a car, a guitar, a wife, a husband, a child. Doesn't matter. The moment what God has given you for your joy that when he, when he gives it to you, that your joy may be complete. When it becomes a statement of who you are, it becomes an idol. Check, check. Immediately start checking in your life. Because I've come to Canada to study and gotten a work permit, or because I've immigrated to Canada, or because I have this car or that car, or because I have this guitar or that guitar, or because I found a beautiful spouse, or because I have five kids, the moment what God has given you for your pleasure and joy becomes a statement of who you are, it becomes an idol. And when it becomes an idol, it always brings in sensuality, pride, confusion, and the demonic. Or power, position. Could be power or position. Um, King Asa, 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 uh, when he saw everything that God did for him, his heart got proud. Sometimes our lack speaks too. Many of us aren't happy when someone else in church begins to really prosper. It's amazing how bitter Christians get when others do really well. Hey, 
When I walk into your house and I see a house that is beautiful, my heart should thrill that your house is more beautiful than mine. If you have anything that I don't have and you are enjoying it and God's given to you, given it to you, my heart should be so happy. I love it when Christians prosper. I mean, I'll call him a show-off, but I love the fact that he has a Mustang. Every time I look at the Mustang, I think to myself, I should have had it when he is young, when I was young, but now that I'm old, I'm happy that he has it. Thrill at other Christians who have good things. Thrill at other Christians making money. Thrill at other Christians and their big houses. Thrill at other Christians and their comfy sofas. Thrill at other Christians and their Canuck tickets. Thrill at other Christians and their chalet in Vancouver. Thrill at it because we somehow do not enjoy it when other Christians prosper. We either assign a motive for their prosperity or we assign a motive for our jealousy. It's discernment. I mean, I wrote a book. I couldn't even get it printed. Chris writes a book and it's in the library. Thrill at it. Even though it's about cats. Every time she sends me an email saying, my book went into this place, or my book is this, I go tell people about it, man. I throw in a bit about cats too, but I go tell people. Every time Dana would do well in Bahrain, my heart would thrill, man. Guys, why am I harping on this point? Simply because it is an issue among Christians. Simply because it's an issue in this church just in case you thought we were talking about the other church. Joan's dad was like that. He would thrill at other people prospering. It's a culture of an orphan that seeks equality. It's a culture of an orphan that seeks equality. Why do you want to be equal? Because you're an orphan. Hard, eh? It's a culture of an orphan that seeks equality. Siblings are often jealous of each other. It's not a good thing, but... Yeah. Okay. Let's conclude. I want to move from the word humility to humiliation. Humiliation. And most of the quotes that I will use are from uh, quotes that Oswald Chambers came up with, and I think they're so worth considering. From humility, we move to humiliation. A prevailing church is a church that is willing to suffer humiliation. A prevailing church or a people of God who prevail, who, who conquer, who overcome, who contend, are a people who are willing to suffer humiliation. Matthew 5, verse 39, Jesus says... I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. I mean, in the natural realm, if you don't hit someone back when they hit you, you are seen as weak. But in the spiritual realm, when you don't hit back, it shows evidence that the Son of God lives in you. But the hit back thing sounds too far removed. When you don't respond in kind to the way people treat you, when people treat you unfairly, when people misunderstand you deliberately, when people misrepresent you deliberately, our, uh, our, our usual response is, I must correct this. Because for us, vindication and justice is important. And don't hang on to that. There's more coming. So you'll get the full picture before you respond to that. Vindication and justice is important. And yet Jesus says that when someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him. Because in the spiritual realm, when you do that, it is the evidence of the Son of God whose nature is in you. When you're personally insulted, when you're personally ridiculed, when these things happen, you must not only not resent it, but you must make it an opportunity to exhibit the Son of God in your life. Not only are you meant not to resist it, you're supposed to use it as an opportunity. Thank God for these ridiculously high 
illogical standards that Christ has set for us. When you're insulted, when you're ridiculed, when you're treated wrongly, when you're misrepresented, when you're misunderstood, when you're accused, use it in a, as an opportunity to evidence the Son of God because that is what he expects. A prevailing church is willing to suffer humiliation. You and I are not. Uh, I am not. But this convicts me pretty hard. There have been occasions when I've, I remember the last church I was in and I, I was leaving for good uh, to uh, begin Acts 29 and there used to be this nice lady but for whatever reason she had it out for me and um, she would make fun of me every Sunday afternoon and gather a crowd to make fun of me too. And uh, as a pastor, you have to be kind, even though you don't want to. And uh, so two weeks left, and I'm leaving. And this lady comes up, and she gathers a little crowd, and she starts uh, making fun again. Uh, of things that she knows either irk me or make me feel not nice. And uh, she started doing it again. And I'm thinking to myself, I've got two weeks, nothing to lose. I'm going to give it to you. And so um, I sense the Lord saying, what do you really want to do, Jacob? And so she finishes saying what she says. Her people start laughing and they make fun for a few seconds. And then I say something really nice about her. And um, uh, compliment her for something genuine. And then I leave. And as I'm leaving, I'm telling the Lord, Father, you know, that was rough. I didn't say anything back. And she really made fun of me. And uh, I don't know, I find it a little unfair. And as I'm walking away, I hear the loud, Lord loud and clear. And he says, Jacob, thank you for being so kind to my daughter. I'm thinking, was it really? For one thing, I can't bear it when God says thank you to me. I find it, I, I, I usually can't handle it. I don't mind me saying thank you to him. But when he thanks me, it bothers me. And as clear as daylight, I hear him saying, thank you for being kind to my daughter. And for the first time in my life, I realized, oh shucks, as much as I'm your son, she's your daughter. She was being nasty to me, but I was nice to her and you heard it. And you actually were happy that I was kind to your daughter. And my eyes were full of tears and I remember saying, Father, if this is all that it takes to make you happy, I'll do it a million times. But usually we don't think of other people made in his image. And we don't think of other Christians as sons or daughters of his. It's you, you and only you. And therefore you react and say things that are nasty. Or at least get your pound of flesh. Or put up resistance. Or stand for justice. Or I must be heard, I must be understood. I cannot be misrepresented. Oh, the vindication of the Lord should be numb. Not Jesus-ish, guys. Not Jesus-ish. We're getting there, we're getting there. The Beatitudes basically can be summed up in these words. Do what is not your duty or your obligation. The Beatitudes may be summed up this way. Do what is not your duty or your obligation. It is not your duty to go the second mile. It is not your duty or obligation to turn the other cheek. But Jesus said that if you, if you Jacob, are my disciple, you will do all these things. I hope across this room we are being convicted by the Holy Spirit. A prevailing people don't crave for vindication. They're not upset at being misrepresented and misunderstood. One of the things someone told me ages ago is that, Jacob, if you want to pastor a church, if you want to work in a church, then please don't crave for being understood. And I say that to you. If you want to enter uh, church work or do ministry, then abandon this whole idea of I need to be understood because it isn't a premium value item. Jesus was brilliant. He would be misunderstood and just in case not everybody misunderstood him, he would go and say stuff like, oh, and by the way, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And then he would walk away without explaining it. Bad enough, there were enough people leaving him. 
and then he would mess it up more but they understood when they when he rose from the dead and now to answer diana's question which she didn't ask oh before we go there guys i love this line a disciple realizes that it's his lord's honor that it is that is at stake in his life not his own honor a disciple realizes it is the lord's honor that is at stake in his life not his own honor every time i insist on having my own rights i hurt the son of god while in fact i can prevent jesus from being hurt if i will take the blow myself love the line it's not mine obviously a disciple realizes that it is his lord's honor that is at stake in his life not his own honor every time i insist on having my own rights i hurt the son of god while in fact i can prevent jesus from being hurt if i will take the blow myself is this the meaning of filling up in my own flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of christ from colossians 124 where you wrong me and instead of making an issue of it i take the wrong because my honor is not important but christ's honor is doesn't matter whether it's my mother my father my brother my sister someone here at acts 29 it doesn't matter i love this next line we are always looking for justice never look for justice but never cease to give it and seek it for others we are always looking for justice never look for justice but always seek it for others and never cease to give it we are always looking for justice never look for justice but never cease to give it and seek it for others we are always looking for justice never look for justice but never cease to give it and seek it for others seek it for others and never cease to give it but go and don't go looking for it we got broader shoulders man we can take insults we can take offenses we can take people misunderstanding us we can take people misrepresenting us we can take accusations we can take mud on our face we can take it because it is our nature why is it our nature because christ lives in you and it is his nature we can take it so that he doesn't have to take it you can take it read paul's letters and you can see him taking accusation upon accusation slander upon slander he calls himself and the rest of the apostles the scum of the earth but when it came to justice for others and giving out justice cease not from it and seek it for others but not for yourself big deal because at the end of the day who is your judge god and he will give you your just rewards he is faithful in this what is hidden will come out to the light what is false will be exposed either in this life or in the next but it will be exposed such a cool statement never cease justice for yourself but never cease to give it and never cease to seek it for others the problem when you start seeking justice for yourself is that becomes your main obsession and others get left out i'm done any questions sorry yeah i'll talk about it another day but ask your question anyways yeah that's when he speaks up for the injustice that is being done by the pharisees to the others one of his main complaints with the pharisees was very simple you have the keys to knowledge and you do not enter in nor will you other allow others to enter in and therefore jesus would take up his cause against them but jesus rarely defended 
himself. He would defend his father every now and then, but he would rarely defend himself. These are characteristics of Jesus that have been swept under the carpet of our rights and this sense of freedom, liberty, justice, equality. They are very good qualities, but maybe we seek it for everybody else because freedom, justice, liberty, and equality for us comes from him. Order. Psalm 25 verse 9 puts it this way and this is critical for a prevailing church that if you are humble I will teach you my ways my God I would love to know his ways I would love to know his ways I would love to be taught his ways but to learn his ways I must. he says I will teach you my ways and then I will show you my ways how badly do we need this as a church and as individuals And it goes without saying that if you are humble, uh, if I am humble, let's take me. If I am humble, I will follow order. Because order requires submission. Order. Eh? I'm not an authority unto myself. I'm submitted to a people, to God, both. Because if I'm humble, I have to, I'm not saying I'm this, I'm just saying, instead of always saying you, 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 I'm just saying I, I'm not saying that this is who I am. I'm just saying that at the end of the day, this is what I desire, that Father, if I'm humble, I will walk in order. I won't take things into my own hands and say, I know what you said, but this is what I want to do. It doesn't work that way doesn't work that way. Questions, guys? Okay, let's just pray. Father, today seemed kind of long, but it's still two hours, actually. 